HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Learn more about PASA's 2021 virtual conference at pasafarming.org slash conference. This week on Meet and 3, it's our 100th episode. We're breaking the mold to kick off our mini-series on global trade. Vegetable, fruits, grains, and cooking technique pass from one region to another. And that's interesting that that region transformed that ingredient into their own specialties. There was a time where black pepper was a luxury. And we know that because people were willing to invest huge amounts of money to go to the Spice Islands in order to get uh, pepper. <laughs> you know, stuff we take for granted now. You know, you go into a restaurant and it's free. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I'd like to be so bold as to suggest you check out my other podcast. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager here at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit, and we need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make your gift today. Happy New Year, everyone, and what a wild start it's been so far. Insurrection, an attempted coup, and more. It's a sad time for American democracy, but I think we can get past this. This is a time to heal and come together and hopefully get to share food again soon. Today's show is about sharing food with others and the ways that that can inform what you learn about people. I've been missing eating in restaurants and connecting with old friends and new friends alike, but there's light at the end of the tunnel as vaccines are rolling out across the country, and I look forward to sharing a meal with people and the in-depth conversation that goes along with that. My guest today is Kate Sullivan. Kate is the host of To Dine For on PBS. The show is a great look at the American dream in conversations using a meal as the format for that discussion. The show just launched its third season, which was shot and produced last year during the pandemic. You can find the show on your local PBS station and on Amazon Prime. 
Thanks, Kate, so much for taking time to speak with me today. Uh, would you do me a favor and just introduce yourself um, when you meet somebody uh, on a plane or, you know, when we used to get on planes a lot and you sit down <laughs> next to them and they say, hey, who are you? What do you do? Uh, what's your what's your introduction? Oh, wow. What a great way to start. Um, so I usually say I usually don't really talk about. Uh, what I do. It's so funny. Some people do and some people don't. Sure. I like to talk more about the person, but for for all intents and purposes, I will say my name is Kate Sullivan. I am the host and creator of a TV show on public television called To Dine For, which is a toast to the American dream. And it features guests from around the country who have created something out of nothing. And we interview them at their favorite restaurant. Uh, sounds to me like a dream job, I have to say. Uh, you get to talk. <laughs> it with, is actually. <laughs> you get to talk with amazing people, as do I here on Feast Your Ears. Um, I've yes. had some really incredible guests, but you get to do it while eating at their favorite restaurants. I used yeah. to get to do it in the Heritage Radio Studio, which is within Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Which is fantastic. Oh, isn't that delicious? We get used to get to you know we used to usually get to have pizza and other delicious things from the kitchen either during or before or after the episode. Of course. Since COVID, I've been producing all of my interviews like this over the phone. Hey, you know what? This is a brave new world and we're making the best of it, right? Yeah. So let's jump right in and talk about To Dine For. Um, sure. So yeah, I mean, you gave a great description of it. Um, how did the show come about? I think that the idea of it is incredible, right? I mean, sitting and talking with people over food is an amazing thing that we most of us all love to do um, all the time. And it's a great way to get to someone's story to let your guest choose the location. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's sort of a lot, you know, I feel like we're kindred spirits, Harry, because you, we understand that food tells a story, right? And um, the idea of the show was based on the idea that someone's favorite restaurant is the beginning of their story. It may not say everything about them, but it is maybe a nod to their culture, where they're from, what they love. Um, and it's really interesting to see where the guest chooses and B, what does it say about them? So we've had everyone from Howard Schultz of Starbucks on. He chose his favorite restaurant in Seattle. It was a Middle Eastern restaurant called Mom Noon. We went to um, Atlanta, Georgia to dine with Sarah Blakely, who created Spanx at her favorite restaurant, which was a sushi restaurant called Umi. Sometimes the guest's choice just signals something delicious that they love to eat. But sometimes it says a little bit more about them. We recently on the new season of To Dine For, which is starting um, on public television this month, we, we go with Mark Cuban, uh, you know, Dallas Mavericks owner, to his favorite restaurant in Dallas, Texas, and he chose IHOP. <laughs> so huh. of all the restaurants he could have chosen, he chose IHOP, and I absolutely loved it because it really did speak to who he is. He liked the idea of going somewhere where he feels comfortable, yep. where he knows what he wants, that isn't fancy, where he could just be himself. And that is paramount to him. And that is him, right? So like, if, if you're, you know, if you're going into it, wanting to use these restaurants as a storytelling vehicle, um, there's nothing more satisfying when a guest really chooses something that says something about themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, the width and breadth of your guests, I think, is incredible. I mean, so the third season's about to start. There are currently two seasons already 
already available. Um, yes. And I mean, you know, from Norman Lear, uh, Jessica Alba, Jose Andres, you mentioned Howard Schultz, but people who maybe aren't household names, like Jake Wood or Ashley Longshore, um, you know, those are people who, like, I knew... I'd heard of Ashley Longshore, but I just watched the episode yesterday in preparation for this, but didn't know anything about her. Mm, wasn't she fascinating? Oh, she was in, She was great. Yeah, she's an artist out of New Orleans who has done all of these. She's really a completely self-made woman, first of all. She is a businesswoman and an artist together. There's a lot of layers to her. She is wildly colorful and funny. Um, she pushes the boundaries of what's acceptable um, as far as you know what she talks about and her art really, um, some might consider it offensive, some find it very funny. Um, she took me to this restaurant that I adored in New Orleans called Saffron Nola, which is an Indian restaurant that is inspired by New Orleans cooking, and the result is just completely to die for food. Um, it probably one of my favorite meals on to dine for was at Saffron Nola, um, and I just loved Ashley's uh, gregarious passion for the restaurant. Um, I think she really understood what I was trying to do, which was to tell someone's story through food. And she really, there's nothing like sitting down with someone who really loves food, right? Yeah. The show isn't about foodies per se. So you could be, you can kind of love food and still have a fantastic episode of To Dine For. Um, but when someone truly is just a food lover, it really comes across. And I love that episode because she she really, really cared about that restaurant. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you choose your guests? Um, I mean, you know, you mentioned in the in your introduction that the show is about the American dream, right. um, which I think is a very, uh, you know, we're, we're living in such strange times, even stranger, I think, than probably when you conceptualized the show as far as <laughs> what the American point. dream means. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm excited to hear where the show may be going in, in the future. But how do you how do you choose your guests? Yeah, so the premise of the show was, first of all, it was people who had created something on their own. So they had either built a company, founded a business, they were an artist, they had written a book. So they, it was had to have been their idea. They mm -hmm. had built something from nothing through their own imagination, heart, and hustle. That was the first sort of the prerequisite to be on the show. The second was that their, what they created, they had a vision beyond themselves, so not only had they built something or created something, but it was in in the service of of the world. It was in the service of something bigger. And so that's how, um, with, through that lens, is how every guest is sort of looked at. And when you actually put that lens up against, you know, the guest, the guest kind of, they're sort of self-selecting, right? Like the yeah. chef Jose Andres, who... Um, I'm sure at this point, everybody knows, yeah. you know, is um, really a superstar, not only as a as a chef, but also as a humanitarian, as someone who, through the work of World Central Kitchen, is feeding people who need it the most. This was a man who really um, brought, you know, gastronomy to another level in restaurants across the country. He was really feeding the rich and the people who could afford these amazing magical meals. And then his life took a, a different turn and he started to really feed people in disaster areas and his life took on a whole different mission. So he's like the perfect example of someone who would be on to dine for, not someone, not just someone who created something through their own imagination, but who is using what they created with a mission beyond themselves. Right. Right. I mean, I, you know, I find it interesting that you've interviewed him as well as Jake Wood, because Team Rubicon does very similar 
work yes. as far as yes. helping people in disaster areas. When Hurricane yes. Sandy hit New York City, um, I spent a lot of time shortly thereafter in the Rockaways and ended up doing some work alongside a bunch of people from Team Rubicon. Oh, did you really? Yeah. yeah, Jake Wood and Jake Wood talk about having a completely opposite background to Jose Andres, yeah. who came from Spain. You know, he's American, but he's an immigrant from Spain. Jake Wood you know, grew up in, in the middle of America and he went and he became a Marine, you know, and he, um, you know, had the experience uh, of a, a military background. When he came back from serving overseas, he said to himself, what can I do um, to serve beyond my military service? And so he created Team Rubicon, which goes into disaster areas and basically mobilizes um, veterans after their service to help and it's such a brilliant idea and he, the work that he's doing is absolutely incredible but yeah they have a similar mission yeah. but they could not have come from from different backgrounds and obviously their restaurants tell that right uh jake wood chose wando's a bar in madison wisconsin it's really a college bar where you get uh you know pictures of beer and burgers right and it's it's just awesome bar food and then jose andres took me all the way to barcelona spain <laughs> Yeah. Um, to Bodega 1900, you know, his favorite restaurant to talk about his, his love of tapas. How has the pandemic affected your work? I mean, season two Greatly. was released at the beginning, sort of, you know, much mm -hmm. of it right in the beginning of the pandemic. Yep. Um, season yep. three, obviously, is coming out shortly. So mm -hmm. you must have shot all of it during this time. We did. And what would have taken two or three months to shoot took nine to 10 months mm -hmm. because um, it was a... Uh, Gosh, it was just incredibly difficult. It was a question of uh, a lot of false starts, a lot of canceling, a lot of rescheduling, a lot of um, how are we going to do this? Should we do this? When are we going to do this? And, um, you know, we crossed every T, dotted every I, and it, it meant waiting it out a lot. There were a couple of episodes where restaurants weren't open for um, dining indoors, but they were open for dining outdoors. So, we shot the episode outdoors. Mm. Um, we went to Stockton, California to interview Michael Tubbs, who uh, is the youngest mayor in our country's history. One of the, I should say, one of the youngest mayors in our country's history. Um, he became a city council member in Stockton at 22 and then the mayor at 26. And um, we interviewed him at a restaurant outdoors, La Palma, um, to hear his story of, of really his, his journey to public service. And, you know, he, he lost re-election. Right. So I will say this season is marked with a lot of losses for a lot of the guests, just like anyone listening, just like all the viewers of the show. I mean, who hasn't negatively been infect affected by the past, you know, nine months? And so um, one of the most fascinating takeaways from season three of To Dine For is just how are people dealing with incredible devastation loss, pivoting, um, recalibrating. Um, we interviewed the CEO and founder of ClassPass, mm. which is like the open table for dance classes and yep. fitness classes. Pyle Kadakia uh, valued at a billion dollars prior to the pandemic. And then 
you know, when March hit, 90% of the studios had to close. Yeah. You know, so as a business owner um, in that industry, what do you do? So uh, Mel Robbins, one of the guests, had a television show on CBS, was canceled right at the beginning of the pandemic. So the guests on this season um, are dealing with incredible losses. Misty Copeland, um, one of the first female black principal dancers at the American Ballet Theater. I mean, what has the pandemic done to ballet, yeah. to live theater and live performances? So every single guest has somehow been dramatically affected. And to be able to interview them at this kind of point in history was really interesting. And I hope that the viewer and the listener has a lot of takeaways from their own life, if nothing else, to realize that we're all in this together and that to feel a little less alone um, in whatever struggle that, you know, you're going through personally, because everyone is dealing with something um, maybe not similar, but but a loss and a loss looks different to everyone. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your life growing up. So you grew up solidly in New England, I would say, uh, (laughs) sort of in in between Providence and Boston. That's right. Uh, And I wanted to talk a little bit, you know, I I was born in New York, but have spent a lot of time in New England. Um, But every time I travel, you know, I mean, regional foods are something that I'm always interested in uh, all all over this country and and certainly all over the world. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about New England regional foods and what are some of your favorites? Ah, oh, I love that. I love that um, topic. So I grew up in Lakeville, Massachusetts. It's a tiny town between south of 40 minutes south of Boston. And it's one of those towns where you could have grown up like 30 minutes away and still never have heard of it. It's that small. My high school was a regional school. So four, ta- four um, towns went to the high school, public school, um, because it was so small. And so in order to have uh, go to a restaurant of note, you really had to leave the town and go to another, you know, to go to Plymouth or New Bedford, uh, Providence to really um, get into the dining scene. But as far as like regional cuisine, you know, um, the my high school and specifically uh, which was called Aponiquit Regional Regional High School um, you know we had a huge population of Portuguese people not only in Lakeville but in the surrounding area of New Bedford and so like um, some of the flavors of Portuguese food I associate even though you know my background is Irish Catholic um, I associate with childhood so much and you know I don't when I talk to people from other parts of the country you know I ask you know did you have linguisa pizza in your in your um, high school cafeteria and they say what are you talking about right. but we did you know we had linguisa pizza every thursday um in our public school because you know that is a very much a flavor of the portuguese people and a very much a staple of portuguese cooking um obviously seafood uh growing up with cod or clams or quahogs um you know was an everyday thing um, I, w- I shouldn't say every day, but it was definitely like on the menu at least once a week. Yeah. And, you know, I think the flavors of the sea and, you know, I guess I didn't really e- even appreciate it um, until I moved away. My career took me to Indiana and Arkansas and all of the regional food of Arkansas was like such a shock to me and <laughs> such an eye opening experience growing up, having grown, grown up south of Boston. But yeah, I too am fascinated by how the regional food speaks to culture, right? Food is the language of culture. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Um, you know, li- living here now, I mean, I live in New England now and, um, you know, all of those things, although where I am in Southern Rhode Island, we don't have as much of the Portuguese influence. Um, you oh. know, when I go up to visit in Providence and stuff, you know, there, there are no bakeries near me where I can buy sweet bread. Um, but really? when we go up to Providence, you know, and, and Fall River in that area, we're, yes. we're always, you know, we pick up, pick up a big loaf of sweet bread. For those of you listening who don't know, um, sweet bread is like a, the way I describe it, having, you know, grown up Jewish is that it's like a giant round sweet challah. Challah, yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's like a similar egg-based egg bread. Yeah, it's yeah, very soft. Yeah, and it's really soft. It'd be great for um, French toast. Yep. It, that's a great comparison. What, what food do you notice where you live now? Um, in Rhode Island, is it an Italian influence? Yeah, th- there's definitely an Italian influence. I mean, I would say stuffies, stuffed, stuffed quahogs are like yes. probably the most notable um, of yep. the regional of the regional yes. foods. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Maine, where you know I feel like as you get up into Southern Maine, you know what most people think of as like Ipswich fried clams. You yes. still have like fried fried soft belly clams um, in Maine and then lobster, of course. And, you know, lobster, you can get it here, but I don't feel like having moved to Rhode Island, I would have expected lobster to be more prevalent, but I don't feel like lobster is a big part of the cuisine here the way it is for no 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 i agree with you it's more massachusetts and maine with the lobster and you know growing up going um to cape cod in the summers you know cod you know in all of its different forms and haddock um and really like a lot of different types of white fish you know sauteed simply with like butter and um uh, breadcrumbs that's very very calm that's like on every menu growing up i remember yeah so you left uh, New England to move mm-hmm. to the middle of the country and worked mm-hmm. in news. You were actually a daily news anchor for many years. I was. Yeah, for many years. That was my career really. Um, since I graduated from college, I started in South Bend, Indiana at the CBS affiliate and was a local news reporter in South Bend. I then moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, was there for five years and then got the call to anchor the morning news in New York at WCBS and then was transferred after four years in New York to Chicago to anchor the evening news. So my background is definitely like daily local news. And it, 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 was, it was a dream. It was the dream at the time. And um, it really helped me hone my love of storytelling. And so I look at To Dine For as really a continuation of storytelling, but really you know, I'm, I'm much more niche, you know, telling the story of visionaries and creatives and business types who have brought things to life is very specific. And it's really nice to be able to kind of take a deep dive into what does innovation look like? How do people stay creative? How do people stay inspired? And those themes that run through every guest is really what kind of not only lights me up, but that I'm most curious about. Yeah, I mean, I I imagine it must be quite hard to be on air every single day, no matter what. Yeah, and I was for almost 20 years. One of my earliest memories is of watching Walter Cronkite on the evening news, followed by The Muppet Show. (laughs) Is that really one of your earliest memories? I love that. I remember sitting with my mom would watch Walter Cronkite every night, and The Muppet Show aired right after it. Oh, well, as I remember that, it. that may I not do. actually be true, but that in my in my mind, I mean, they were both on CBS, but in, in my mind, Walter Cronkite would say, and that's the way it is. And then like, <laughs> you know, moments later after a commercial break would be the intro to The Muppet Show. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Those, these are, this is what shapes our lives, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Local news, you know, the variety, especially as a local news reporter where you're actually out gathering the story, um, 
there isn't a type of story I haven't covered, whether it's a murder or a fire or a natural disaster, um, there or you know a presidential campaign or a presidential interview or when I was at Arkansas, a lot of stuff with the Clintons or the opening of the Clinton Presidential Library. There's never been a, I think, a type of story I haven't covered. So it gave me a really great background into to telling lots of different types of stories. And I think had I not done that. I wouldn't have realized, you know, this this type of story that I'm most excited about, which is what I think of as, you know, everyone has a different version of what they think of as the American dream. And I, it's one of the questions I ask all the guests is, you know, what is your version of the American dream and what, how do you define it? Because everyone defines it differently. And you kind of alluded to it, Harry, that, you know, this has been quite, you know, the past 12 months plus four years have really been um, defining for the American dream as a concept and, and how it's evolving. And it's really, really interesting to see how even since I started the show, how it's sort of changed a little bit, how people are defining it differently. And um, I think it's like one of the most interesting topics because everyone has a different take on it. Yeah. In your interview with Jose Andres, you uh, spoke about the divisiveness in America, yes. um, which, I mean, in, in retrospect, looking back, I mean, that was in 2018, I think. And mm -hmm. it feels like in 2018, things were far less divisive than they are now. I know. Um, and I know. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. You know, but you also, you know, you talk about the idea that food can bring us together. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to know if, you know, through hosting this show uh, to dine for and, you know, talking with all of these people, some in food, some, you know, outside of food, obviously, but all around food. How do we start using food as a tool um, to bring to bring people together at this point? Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons that people don't, you know, this is me just talking off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. So take it with a grain of salt. But I think one of the reasons why people don't get along is because they don't understand each other. And they don't understand each other because they don't listen. And when you sit down to eat with someone, not only do you ha have the opportunity to listen to what they have to say, but you have the opportunity to learn something about them, to stop thinking about yourself for a second and to lean in and to learn. And so I think, you know, for me, it's how do we as a culture, as a society, um, foster that ability to pause and try to put yourselves in someone else's shoes and thinking, why do they, why do they think that way? I disagree with them, but why do they think that way? And um, unless you can show that on television, put that in a podcast, and people maybe don't know how to model that, I think listening is the number one thing um, that we have going for us to learn. And so, yeah, I think... I think food also tells a little bit about the person. And so that it's a jumping off point to understand more. And so, yeah, I think that that concept in many different iterations, you know, whether it's done in their own hometown, whether it's done um, whether they're watching a television show, I think that concept can actually bring people together. It seems like the problems that are at hand are so massive. And frankly, I don't know how you feel, Harry, but like for me, it feels like, we're moving farther apart as a society instead of in any way closer together. Um, yeah. 
Do you feel that way? I do. I mean, I you know, I I, I try to be optimistic, but yeah. when when things are feeling dark, um, I certainly do feel that way. I I love your point though about listening because eating dinner with someone you can't talk with your mouth full. I mean, you know, I mean, my, I mean, my my seven year old does, and we try to convince him not to, but you know, in in uh, you know. If you are being respectful at the table, for the most part, you don't talk with your mouth full. And so you are right. forced to not talk all the time. Whereas if you bring people together in these sort of meetings or town halls and things, I feel like those can very quickly devolve into just who can yell the loudest. Absolutely. And food is 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 a point. It's not it's a point of connection. It's it's a moment of pleasure. It is a moment of entertainment. It is a moment of nourishment. You know, I always say when people are eating, they're not angry. Mm. Um, and if you can get people where they are being fed literally and figuratively, it is a moment for them to listen. You're right. Not just because they physically can't talk right. and they are listening, but it is a chance to be fed intellectually and spiritually um, to understand someone else's point of view, period, full stop. Yeah. I um, so, I yeah. When I'm feeling most down about these things, I think it's important to remember that, you know, we live in a time where everything happens really fast, right? Mm -hmm. Like in many places in this country, if you want something, you can just open your phone and you can have it at your house tomorrow. Right. And that, I think, leads us to believe that we can fix or mend or change things quickly. And I mm -hmm. think when we're talking about the people that feel differently about the direction of the country or people that feel disenfranchised, I think that that work takes more time than we in our regular lives are used to things taking now because we've become mm. so used to things being fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, the very first episode of To Dine For is with um, a former monk named Jay Shetty, who has achieved an incredible amount of success recently with a book um, and a podcast. He's the number one podcast for mental health in the world right mm. now. It's called On Purpose. And I love talking to him about, you know, not only creating what he has, creating his career around the mental um, health space, but also his philosophies um, have to do with drawing upon all different types of religions and um, the, the concept of slowing down and mindfulness and taking, giving your mind a break. We have so much coming at us on our phones, on, on our TV screens, on our computers, almost at a, at a rate, just like you said, that we cannot process as humans. And we think we can because, you know, we're, we're logging and we're changing and we're looking at Instagram and then we're moving over. And we think we can handle this. You know, we think we can process it all. But what it does is it leaves us no time for our mind to rest mm. and for us to get into a, 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 a place of wellness and of, of uh, a, a good mental space. And um, I think the effect of all of these screens on us as a world and as a society is going to be something we're going to really reckon with in the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah, I think so. This 
episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Cultivating environmentally sound, economically viable, and community-focused farms and food systems. PASA Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference is one of the largest gatherings of sustainable farmers, food system professionals, and changemakers in the nation. The 2021 virtual conference takes place January 19th to February 5th and features more than 90 sessions on topics that include soil health, climate change, crop production, livestock grazing, urban agriculture, community building, food justice, and much, much more. Don't miss keynote speaker Robin Wall Kimmerer, scientist and author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Learn more about PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2021 virtual conference and register online at pasafarming.org conference. So I wanted to I wanted to ask about your children. Yes. Um, do they like food? <laughs> I, have a as, I, I noticed that. Uh, <laughs> do they like food as much as you do? Yes, they do. So my I have three boys, ages six, four, uh, almost four, and two. So right now they're two, three, and six. Oh and, wow! As um, they get older, yeah. it's going to be really wild at your house. <laughs> It's going to be a lot of food, but yeah. we have a couple of rules. We have a lot of rules around the dinner table, as you can imagine, with to dine for and my passion being food. You know, I do not cook separate meals for myself and then for the kids. We cook one meal, and yep. they that's what they have for dinner. And the rule is they have to try everything, but they don't have to like it. So they can like whatever they want, but they have to try everything that is put in front of them. And I think the result is they really do like um their palate is is growing and they you know my oldest loves salmon and my my youngest will eat beets and um now are they are, is that what they love no they love mac and cheese yeah, just like every other kid but they are <clears throat> i really want to them to have an understanding and appreciation of different types of foods and then we have you know we have a no tv policy and no phone policy and we always try to have um a kind of a fun discussion about something at the dinner table every night, even if it's just for like eight minutes. Cause I don't know what dinners are like at your house, but they're pretty quick at my house. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have an 11 year old and a seven year old and, and it's getting better. I mean, I feel like incrementally we now are at a point where, you know, sometimes not all the time, but we all four of us can engage in like a topic of conversation where everyone yes. has something to say and listens and contributes to the conversation. That's and that's exactly what it's all about, right? Um, something that I learned actually from a to dine for guest was Sarah Blakely, who created Spanx. Something that she does with her family because she has four children every night, and that is rosebud thorn, where they have to. Everyone has to go, and we do this now. Even the two-year-old does this. Um, rose is the best part of your day. Bud is what you're looking forward to, and thorn is the worst part of your day. Oh, I'm gonna and, write that down. That's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, rosebud thorn, and and it, sometimes it's just about you know with the two year old he's saying you know you know brother shoved me or something right. is the worst part of his day, sure. but you know he's looking forward to going to the park after dinner and um, the rose he might he a lot of the kids say the best part of their day is dinner you know so they'll point to dinner, um, so even the two year old before he could speak he could at least point 
um, to what was great and what was bad about the day. And the six-year-old can go on and on about his favorite part of the day. And they love it. And in fact, I don't even have to bring it up anymore. You know, they'll say, let's do Rosebud Thorn. Nice. Um, and it's a great way to get everyone talking. And it's actually, it sounds very like childlike and fun for kids, but it's wonderful for a business meeting or for dinner, you know, if you have colleagues where you don't know what how to break the ice. I right. think it's a great because it can lead to some really funny conversations or revealing when you find out people's worst part of the day, you know? Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you that if roles were reversed and I was interviewing you on To Dine For, mm -hmm. where would we go to dinner? It's mm, a great question. For me, I one of the one of the reasons why I started the show is I have such an appreciation for food in different parts of the country. So when I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, there was a place called Your Mama's, and it was right in downtown Little Rock. And a lot of business people would go there for lunch, and it was uh, chicken fried chicken and uh, fried pork chops and creamed corn and collard greens and yeast rolls, and you could have cream gravy and brown gravy and green beans. And it was true soul food. And it was unlike anything I'd ever eaten coming from Massachusetts. And mm. so for me, it was the beginning of understanding what does it mean to live in Little Rock? And what does it mean? Everyone everyone in Little Rock took a lunch, and, and a really nice long lunch. And they would sit, and they would talk, and they would visit, and it wasn't rushed. And it was, you know, the food was incredibly filling and delicious. You know, I had never had chicken fried chicken before. It was so good. And I was what I was doing was getting an introduction in Southern culture in what it means to live in Little Rock and, and how people relate differently there. And they do. It is a different world than growing up in Massachusetts. And so, you know, if we, that is, that is a place that comes to mind, you know, I'm from Massachusetts, so we might go to Freestones in New mm -hmm. Bedford, Mass. And, um, sit at the bar and have a drink and have, um, you know, maybe uh, some, they have a fish chowder that is wins all the competitions and just sit there and be a part of, uh, you know, the, the history of New Bedford, Mass, I think would really speak to where I'm from. Um, I was a news anchor in New York City for four years and I had to go to bed at two, uh, to go to bed at six at night. So, mm. cause I had to get up at two in the morning <laughs> to anchor the morning news. And, um, as you know, have, knowing New York so well, no one is around to have dinner with you at five no. in New York City <laughs> that has any sort of career, right? So I found myself eating dinner by myself almost every night. And um, no one also really cooks in New York. That's not fair, but most people eat right. out. And so I found myself at the best restaurants in New York sitting at the bar by myself and it became a hobby, a passion, and a real interest of mine. And so there are so many places in New York that I, I would I, that, that reveal a part of my life that I would love to take someone and show them what it's like, you know, to eat at a Jean Georges restaurant and, and that elevated experience that you can only have in certain parts of the world, mm. in certain cities in the world, that is unlike anything else. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very hard question. You can tell that I'm really passionate about it, but I, I feel like my personality is fragmented from all these different um, experiences I've had, and they sure. all speak to something else. <laughs> what about you, Harry? Where would you take me? Well, two places come to mind. Um, one more recent 
in my life and one sort of older in my life. Um, there is a fantastic Thai Laotian restaurant run by a couple who are clearly immigrants in Westerly, Rhode Island called Nam Kong. Mm. Um, and I, I'm writing this down. It, Nam Kong? Nam Kong. Uh, okay. N-A-M-K-H-O-N-G. Okay, I'm writing it down. And, you know, it's a little hole in the wall in a strip mall, um, but the food is always fresh and delicious. And, you know, it's the, it is a place where we get takeout from there probably once a week at this point, in part because wow. I would be so sad if it went away. Yeah, um, you're trying you know, to support it. Yeah, having, I mean, having moved from New York City where there is, you know, an unbelievable amount of incredible food being from all over the world being created by immigrants, mostly in their own neighborhoods. Um, right. You know, Southern Rhode Island does not have a great deal of that. And right. so I really, you know, wanting to support that because to me, that's a really big part of, you know, it's a part of the American dream. Yes. Um, the other restaurant that I would, uh, that I actually don't even know if it's still in business. It was, it's a restaurant called Conti's that existed in a couple of different forms in Rockland, Maine. Um, mm. First time I went there was probably in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, the last time I dined there was a couple of years ago. He's been in a couple different places, but the, the chef's name is John Conti. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look him up online, you can find a profile that was written about him. Um, and he's just a madman chef who grew up <laughs> in an Italian fishmonger family in Mount Kisco, New York. And ran a restaurant that you would go and you had to order before you sat down. You would oh, stand wow. at the door and wait to sit down and the hostess or waitress would come over and the day's food would be written on a brown scroll. I mean, there was a roll of butcher paper hung on the wall next to the door. And you would basically order what you wanted and everything was basically main courses. And then you would sit down at these tables that were, you know, these giant sort of, you know, almost communal, like long tables. And you could go with two people or you could go with 25 people. And they would bring over uh, giant jugs of wine that had Sharpie marks on them. So you basically <laughs> would like pay by the inch of whatever you drank. <laughs> and they would bring out bowls of salad and there were these giant loaves of bread that were probably 24 inches across that he would bake every day. And John cooked by himself in the kitchen and almost, it was mostly seafood. I mean, it was like, and everything came over pasta. So like if you oh, ordered the scallops, amazing. yeah, and he didn't have a refrigerator. So, I mean, he basically would buy whatever he felt like he wanted to cook that day mm -hmm. and he would develop the menu and then he would cook until he was either out of food or got mad and didn't want to cook anymore. So like <laughs> you could go there at 5.30 and he'd be closed because he would have only cooked for two tables and decided He's he was done. done for the day. Or you could oh, be in there awesome. until 11.30 at night and he would still be cooking and, and in the kitchen. Okay, I, this, this sounds fantastic. I, I love this and I love the story that it tells, but I'm really surprised you didn't pick someplace in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like I could have, but you know, I that felt felt a little cliche and also, you know, uh I don't know. There are plenty of places in Brooklyn that yeah. that we could go. Um, yeah, you were you were thinking of the story aspect of it. I was thinking I, I was thinking of the story aspect of. I mean, I yeah. I used to work on the other side of the television camera. I used to be a gaffer. So, also thinking about places that would also visually tell a story. Yeah, I um, love that. You know, not that places yeah. in Brooklyn aren't aren't nice and beautiful, but I you no. know, over the last 10 years a lot of the restaurants in Brooklyn kind of look the same 
to be honest. Mm, so. Interesting. Well, you know, it's it's always interesting. First of all, you, those are two incredible locations, and I'm I'm actually, you know, I, my hometown's close to Westerly, Rhode Island, so yeah. I'm going to actually look up that place and hopefully go to it. Um, but we interviewed. So, to dine for is a television show on public television, and then there's a podcast version of it too. And we recently interviewed Scott Goldshine, who is the general manager of Zabar's on the mm-hmm. Upper West Side. And he, um, you know, he, he had a really hard time picking his favorite restaurant, as you can imagine. Anyone in New York has a hard time because there's so many yeah. fabulous restaurants. Like, where are you going to go, right? And um, so he was going back and forth, and he's like, "Oh, where should we go?" And he thought about Cafe Luxembourg mm. um, on the Upper West Side, and then he, um, then he finally decided, you know what? He said, "Let's go to Katz's." And so we went to Katz's, and he told the story of Zabar's, which is a specialty grocery store for those, I'm sure everyone who's listening knows, but is a specialty grocery store on the Upper West Side that has really just survived. I mean, they have really just, they when where, where other grocery stores have, have perished, they have hung in there. Yeah. And um, they're a wonderful example of a mom and pop that does it right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, while so many either, you know, have been subsumed by giant grocery stores or just gone out of business, like, you know, they they really have done an incredible job of doing it right and staying open. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and the, the, the idea, just like you were talking about Nung Kong, is that, you know, the American dream with this show, it's not just the guests. It's the restaurant. I mean, the yeah. restaurants are the greatest example of the American dream come to life because you can have any education level or no education and work hard with a singular vision to create a successful restaurant. You, you, we can see examples of that all over the country. And so I always say when you watch To Dine For, you get two American dream stories. You get the one of the guests and you get the story of the restaurant and all their hard work and sacrifice. And that's never been more true than this year as restaurants have literally paddled underwater furiously to stay afloat. It has been, it brings tears to your eyes um, because so many have not made it, Um, but it brings tears to your eyes for all those that have and that are still hanging in there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, people can find the first two seasons uh, online. And yes, then, on Amazon Prime. And the third can, season starts when? It starts Thursday. Great. Um, and it check your local listings for your public television station. Uh, depends on what city you're in. In Chicago, here it starts on Sunday. In Boston, it starts on Sunday. I, I imagine it would start on Sunday in Rhode Island, hmm. but I can check for you personally, Harry. Um, I'll take a look. But yeah. Yeah, to dine for, and, and then in a week it'll be on pbs.org. Great. And then is season four in the works? Season four is, we're fingers crossed. We're just <laughs> we're working on getting season three out there. But sure. yes, uh, fingers crossed that there will be a season four. You know, with the pandemic and everything, um, it has, th- season three was no easy feat to accomplish I and bet. to get it out in the world. And so, um, yeah, f- fingers crossed for a season four. Awesome. Well, thanks, Kate. It was really wonderful to speak with you today. Oh, Harry, I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for the restaurant recommendations. I can't wait to try them. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can follow Kate and her work at Kate Sullivan TV and at To Dine For TV. And you can check out the third season of To Dine For on your local PBS station. And you can find seasons one and two on Amazon Prime. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org 
on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.